This show is brought to you by Brain First Training Institute, ICF accredited coach certifications and applied neuroscience training. To become a brain-based coach, get certified in applied neuroscience and stay up to date with what's happening in the world of applied neuroscience and coaching, join our Brain First community over at brainfirsttraininginstitute.com. Hey, it's Ramon and welcome to Brain Coach Radio, where we hear from expert coaches, leaders and trainers who are using applied neuroscience to help their clients get life-changing results. We discuss various coaching topics, neuroscience insights, business tips and much more, all to help you succeed. Now, let's get into the episode. No interruptions. Enjoy, my friends. In this episode, Dr. Anthony Jack joins me on the show. Dr. Jack holds a PhD in experimental psychology, as well as having extensive training in philosophy and neuroscience. He is an associate professor and director of research at Case Western Reserve University and the principal investigator at the Brain, Mind and Consciousness Lab. Now, I wanted to have Tony on the show because uh, at Brain First Training Institute, we're always drawing on uh, neuroscience-backed intervention models so that our coaches, uh, who we teach and train, uh, have solid evidence and brain-based techniques when working with their clients. And Tony's conducted some very illuminating research in this area, and specifically with one of my uh, one of my favourite models, which we'll discuss. Uh, I'd really like for us to talk about the neuroscience of coaching and change. Uh, I'm pretty familiar uh, with your work in this area, particularly around uh, you know the positive emotional attractor, negative emotional attractor. Um, I think one of the coolest parts of my job is actually getting to speak to the people who have conducted the research and the papers that I read and draw from in my work. Uh, but what I'd love to know is how you got into this area of research around the uh, neuroscience and the coaching and change work stuff. Um, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, partly it's from meeting someone, Richard Boyartis, who is... Um, you know, a very established person who's really worked on, I mean, he was originally a therapist, but he's worked in um, this kind of area for a long time. Um, and so that sort of reignited an old interest in of mine. I mean, I'd always, my PhD is in psychology, and I'd always considered the possibility of being clinical, but I went down the more scientific route and um, to me, I always felt like there was a little bit of a disjoint between the scientific approach to the mind and the sort of particularly the more humanistic therapeutic approach to the mind. And um, so that, that, and that had been a theme in my work for some time without going into all the details of that. But um, I, I mean, I'd, I'd long been interested in could we, with these these participants, or we used to call them subjects in experiment. Yeah. <laughs> right? Could we could we get their point of view? So uh, I ended up writing some papers about that and the, and editing like a two volume collection called "Trusting the Subject?" Question mark, which was all about like why is it that psychologists, scientific psychologists, don't seem to trust their participants to have anything useful to say about the experiment they're in. Um, and and how how might that sort of information enrich us? So I'd long been attuned to this idea that there's a bit of a disconnect, and um, 
Richard, as you say, he has uh, a theoretical framework which primarily focuses on this idea of a negative emotional attractor and a positive emotional attractor. But it isn't just about, you know, feel good versus negative emotions. It's also about a view of ourselves that is kind of objectified and dehumanized, um, where we are worried about how we are as a cog in the system. Do I check the boxes? Is my performance good? That kind of thing. Versus a much more human approach to the individual, which is to say, you know, what are your goals? What are your dreams? Um, You know, what makes you tick? And um, that division is something which my, um, my research really pushed into. So I would say that the... Richard has done a very good job of describing a tension or polarity between two ways of thinking that often come up in the context of evaluating your goals and where you want to go in your career. Um, And so his point would be that usually as a society, we often default to this rather kind of like objectifying view of like how, what boxes am I ticking? What should I, what CV points should I get, et cetera. Whereas what really motivates us is this, is this vision-inspired view of, a, of an ideal future. I have also been, I mean, and I think that's a very important polarity or tension. I've also been working on just understanding, like, what are the tensions that naturally arise in the brain? And what you see there is that there is a kind of related tension that, that is a big divide in the brain between... Um, basically how we um, understand objects and the physical world, which are things that it is appropriate for us to manipulate and that we indeed, we have been so evolutionary successful because we have been very good at manipulating them um, and making this world, the whole world, most of the world we see around us, there are a few plants, but you know, most of this is all man-made around me. You know, there's the whole landscape. Um, they're very much human, created, human manipulated, a, a, an artifact, if you like, um, versus a way of thinking that is to do, that, that has evolved so that we can um, regulate ourselves, but also understand um, our fellow being, particularly, of course, initially our children who have this very long gestational age where we have to we have to foster them if they are to flourish. So we have this extraordinary capacity uh, relative to other animals to, to have complex representations of other minds, of what other people are thinking and feeling, how other people have different perspectives on the world. And what we see is that the brain really divides up on this. So there's, there's, a, there's a different brain network for understanding someone else's perspective down from thinking logically. Um, and uh, that's, that's sort of surprising from a point of view of psychology because many psychologists, say Alison Gopnik, well-known psychologist at, in, in, uh, who was at Berkeley, um, and she, she, a lot of her work was about, like, well, we can think of our understanding of other minds as similar to scientific understanding. Well, there may be some similarities in an abstract level, but in fact, we use completely different brain networks. And not only do we use completely different 
brain networks, by which I mean sets of brain areas that sort of hang together. But also when we use the brain network to understand someone else's point of view, we turn off the areas for understanding logic and science and vice versa. So there's this huge division in the brain and that's ended up being where a lot of my research is focused on that and um, certainly seems relevant in the coaching context. Mm-hmm. So where do we, because what I'd love for us to do is uh, really unpack this and then lead towards some practical takeaways for our, our listeners. So where do we start with this uh, when it comes to um, really better understanding something like coaching and change through this neuroscience lens? Uh, like, do we start with intentional change theory or? Intentional change theory is a wonderful theory in the set. It's very, it's a very practical theory. So what it does is it identifies a whole bunch of key insights and phases that it's useful to go through within a change process. And, um, one of Richard's key realizations that, that led to him creating that theory, which, which is also based on his mentor, Siri David McClellan at Harvard. Um, and then he, Richard has continued to sort of build on that model and, and, and build it up into intentional change theory. Um, so one of the key realizations that Richard had was that while we need to balance these two points of view, um, one, the more humanistic, like I was saying, and the other, the more kind of reductive, seeing yourself as an object, what are your performance targets, how are you doing? The, if you're going to change, it has to be grounded in this kind of humanistic way of seeing yourself. It has to be grounded in um, something that is internally motivating to you rather than something that comes from this perspective where, as it were, you look at yourself from the outside and say, well, he could do better there, or he's not so good there, you know, whatever. There, there are some strengths, right? So we all have that perspective on ourselves, and it's obviously an important perspective. But um, one of the key realizations he had was that we need, to, we need to really give people a lot more support to have that grounded sense of, like, what's a vision that can motivate you going forward? And only then do you bring in this kind of more, more um, objective view of yourself, if you like. So the first phase is like identifying the ideal self. And then you come within that context to the real self, he says. Like, so it's, it's a more, um, it's getting some tough feedback maybe. And we know actually um, from, from also from other work in, in uh, neuroscience and coaching that the, the context in which you receive feedback is, is um, very important for how well you process it. So if you're receiving feedback in a context where you feel like you're being criticized, where you don't feel socially supported, then um, often that'll create a sort of um, upset and dissonance that will mean you may actually resist making those changes. Even with the best way, you may say, I ought to make those changes, but you'll end up like not really having the internal motivation to do it. Um, whereas if you, if you get that feedback from the perspective of feeling socially supported and of being 
focused on dreams that really matter for you, goals that really matter for you, and then you're just taking the feedback to help you get there, then that's a, that's a, that's a, a where we, we, we much more, much better able to psychologically incorporate the feedback um, so that you can actually make the change. So ideal self, vision for the future, uh, the, the core part of this, which I've noticed you keep mentioning is how we see ourselves. It's really about how we see ourselves, right? So um, values would come into this being values driven. Uh, how do we actually go about doing this? Like what, what are some of the practices that, um, how do you, uh, let me ask you this on a personal level. How do you incorporate this stuff into your own life? Sure. I mean, I've done the, I've done the visioning and, uh, exercises a few times and, uh, uh right. So, um, and I, I, as a coach, I, I do it with others. So, um, yeah, actually one of the, one of the sort of simpler exercises one could do is, is something like a value card sort. And I often do this just because it's an easy thing to do in class with my, with my undergraduate. So I, I just, you just go through a bunch of values, you know, family, etc. And you, you, there are lists, you can find them on the web. You can, you can buy sets of cards that, that, that like physically to do it. And um, I think actually that just in itself is really quite powerful. Um, not, not because there's anything terribly sophisticated about what you're doing. It just tunes you into this other way of thinking that's like, what do I actually care about? Um, well, again, like moving you away from this kind of critical evaluative view of yourself and into like a much more ethically dri purpose driven kind of view of yourself. So I think that, that that sort of exercise can be tremendously powerful. Um, but that can be a conversation as well. I mean, it does. I mean, value cards is one way. Um, and I think there are certain contexts that tend to foster it more. It's great if you can go for a walk in nature or something, uh, you know, I think we all understand there are moments in life when we kind of, we connect, we're more in our bodies, we connect to our, our feelings and our values and um, that gives us an ability to discern what really matters to us in a way when we come up with that belief, I should do that, that it's not, that it's an internally motivated it's actually a belief that's fully connected to your, as it were, your being. Whereas a lot of the time when we think I should do that, it's kind of like, well, I should do that. But I don't really want to do that, right? <laughs> and so, um, and that, that's what comes from thinking of ourselves in this more kind of like external, how do I meet the, meet the requirements? How do I meet other people's needs? What other people want from me? Okay, well, you know, we all have to do that, but that disconnects you from, or can disconnect you, depending on how supportive those other people are, but yeah. Yeah, we often use uh, some of the resources from uh, acceptance and commitment therapy, like Ross Harris values lists and, and those sorts of things. And sometimes it's even as simple as asking the question, you know, what, what's important to you about that? Oh, something I've never actually thought about. Is this even important yeah. to me? You know, like, like how? What, what are my thoughts on this? 
That's so marvelous. That's like Aristotle. I mean, Aristotle had this, you know, he was the first person to really, uh, at least recorded that to, to talk about a purpose driven life. And that was, you know, one of his things, you just ask why, <laughs> of course, kids do that until you go crazy. <laughs> but you know, <laughs> my, I was just up at, uh, my, uh, sister's place and my nephew was three and it, apart from just <laughs> non-stop chatterbox every now and again he's like but why why this why that i'm like <laughs> it's marvelous they still have that spirit of inquiry that maybe is a little undirected but yeah <laughs> it's great uh but it's it sounds like uh the the state you're talking about shifting into this other way of of thinking maybe even it's another way of being so the state is really important and of course we know that from the the neuroscience i'm sure we're going to dive into the um uh expanding on what that actually is and parasympathetic sympathetic and all those sorts of things uh, what are some of the indicators that you've noticed that people could have in mind to know when they're there that's one of the things we often find in in our work at the institute is but how will I know? Like, because I don't have a reference experience for that. If I've never been through that before, and I don't really know, and I've maybe I'm I've been very logical, analytical, driven, and often these questions come up with um, my students about you know I've got this person who's super uh, uh, analytical and logical all the time, and that's what they say they're like. Um, and then we go through an exercise of you know I'm pretty sure that's not true. They're not always like that. So it's about identifying these moments when they're something other than that but yeah what are some of the indicators that people can have in mind they go oh yeah it's like this i know that state i know that feeling yeah that's a great it's a great question i mean i think i think that doing you know yoga or breath work i think breath work in particular which gets more attention these days of course because of the pandemic but um and, the, and this marvelous book about Mm. Um, breath that recently came out, um, James Nestor, I think, um, is, um, and then, and then meditation, but meditation can be challenging without having the intro. Um, mm. so I think actually that's one of the great powers of sort of, um, doing a little bit of maybe physical movement and then breath work is it gets you there in a way that's less of a <clears throat> like tough push, but, um, I think those sorts of moments are uh, all going through an induction like that and getting that parasympathetic system going um, is, is, is clearly a way to get you into the right sort of state. Um, I, I think another, another thing that um, I sometimes encourage my students to do is just think about the concept of, what is a life story? What is a successful life? What is a narrative, right? The, and, and you can start with other people, right? And examples of like, this looks successful, this doesn't. And that, that, that also, I think, gets you into the mode of thinking, which is much more, as the psychologist Jerome Bruner would say, it's not the paradigmatic way that we think of as reason. The paradigmatic reason is this logic and science and um, rationality, if you like, economic being economically rational. Um, it's a it's a narrative mode of thought, um, uh, and so that's something um, 
I think I think those physical processes. I think think about narrative. If you if you can connect with art, or a moment when it did you have connected with it, and then I would say nature. You know, like climbing a mountain, and then when you're at the top, that feeling. That's the one you want when you're thinking about like where should your life? What's the big vision for your life? And then you can dig down into the details later. But yeah, that's very very cool. Um, let's dive into some of the science. Let, let's, un- let's unpack this for our, our listeners. So what's going on in the brain? What's going on in the nervous system during these, uh, states? What are some of the characteristics of these, of these two different states? Um, so yeah, you, you talked about the sympathetic and parasympathetic in this, and there is, um, something of a, of a link there. So when we're doing something that's cognitively effortful, it turns out that actually activates us when you're thinking hard, when you're really analyzing something. Maybe you're anxious and that's why, or maybe it's just a difficult task, right? Um, then um, that actually activates your sympathetic nervous system much like, um, I don't know, holding something, gripping something really hard also activates your sympathetic nervous system. Um, Emotional conflict or cognitive conflict, having difficulty deciding between things. All these things sort of activate that sympathetic response. And that's, that's more tied to this kind of um, analytic, distanced way of seeing ourselves. Um, if that is, if that's what you're doing at the time, seeing yourself. I mean, if you're lifting weights, it's all good. Um, <laughs> right. So, um, the the there's actually an even clearer link in in the brain between the parasympathetic response with, and um the 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 empathic way of if you like of seeing yourself and and of relating to other people and um in fact there's a they they talk about it as the parasympathetic sympathetic safety um response which is which helps us to regulate that stress response helps us to cope with feelings of discomfort and stress um and is right next to brain areas that are also being identified as um critical for having a sense of life purpose so um <clears throat> you one of the ways one of the signatures of course of the difference between the sympathetic and parasympathetic response is that when you breathe in, your heart rate is slightly faster than when you breathe out, and that's called um, your respiratory sinus arrhythmia. Um, so um, the more that difference is, or your vagal tone is sometimes referred to, the, b- the bigger that difference, then um, the more of this parasympathetic signal you're getting. Because what really happens is that um, the parasympathetic signal um, is the one that slows the heart rate, whereas the and it's it's only a subsidiary signal to the sympathetic, which is as it were the main signal, adjusting like how activated you should be. So um, yeah, that's one of the wonderful things about breathing. You breathe in, you breathe out, you focus on energy coming in and relaxation. This is a real hack of the system, and um, breathing is fascinating in the sense that it's both voluntary and automatic. So it's both like reason and action in the sense that we can immediately make ourselves breathe in or breathe out. Um, We have that immediate intentionality to it. 
And it's like our emotions, which we can't really directly control. We can only do things that indirectly control them. So um, I think breathing occupies this very interesting space where, where focusing on that sometimes can really help. Um, and often, often you, you know, I'm trained as a coach, but also as a gestalt um, therapist to some degree. And that's, that's, a, that's some advice in gestalt is like just to get the client to settle into their body, take a few deep breaths, can completely change the course of how a therapy session or a coaching session is going to go, um, particularly when someone's hit a point that makes them anxious and upset. So there's emotional conflict, there's difficulty. And a lot of people at that point are going to go into this kind of analytic, they're going to go into their head, if you like, informally. It's just at those points, if you can slow down and stay in your body, sit a bit with the discomfort that I think you can get a little bit of a, a breakthrough, get through some blocks. It's one of the things that uh, when I introduce my students to this idea of taking a brain-first approach, you know, you might have a, a coach that's interested in taking a client through like a goal-setting session and they need the big vision and everything to begin with. And taking a brain-first approach is really considering all of the things that are going on in the brain and the nervous system. So I always kind of joke around, you know, you can have the, the best goal setting system in the world, but if the person hasn't slept the night before, they're jacked up on caffeine and they're an emotional wrecked wreck, it's probably not going to make any difference. So it's about considering all of these things and how they impact on uh, the, the person's state and the state that's needed for um, setting the goals or for the visioning or for, you know, getting down into the details. Um, so it's really interesting, some of these things that, that you're talking about. What about um, what's going on with the these intrinsic brain networks uh, in the brain during these different states? Uh, and I'm reminded of the terms coaching with compassion, coaching for compliance. So are these... Um, direct correlates of positive emotional attractor and negative emotional attractor? Um, yeah, right. We talk of those two coaching styles as tending to push you into one or the other. Right. Okay. Okay. Can you, can you elaborate on that a little more so we can understand that better? So I think one of the most, um, we, there are two, I think, really important signatures that we saw associated with this style of coaching with compassion as compared with compliance, right? So this more human, more supportive type of coaching. And um, one of those is that this um, activity in the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, which is the same brain area as I was talking about, is involved in parasympathetic um, modulation and kind of that relaxed breathing out, that dropping into your body. Um, I think... Um, I should say about context that the other really powerful context is just a, someone who you perceive to be supportive. That can make such a huge difference. Um, and, and we know that that, you know, that brain network is mainly about social connection. And so if you have that sense, you know, that you're with, with family, where you're, you're home, 
which of course we don't necessarily always feel with family or um, but that you're like fully supported you're with someone who really has that or, or, what Rogers would call un- unconditional positive regard for you then that's really going to help you shift into that mode of thinking um So it's not, but it's not the case that there's it's an, those two styles of thinking entirely divide between those two brain networks because there's actually another part of that social brain network that's more to do with being self-conscious and gets activated when you're a bit anxious and we actually see that um, a bit more in the in the uh, coaching for compliance. I mean, it's still a social interaction if you're with someone who is pushing you more that way. Um, and, and what about, um, this is something that I always get, which is, uh, you know, when we're talking about positive affect and negative affect, something I first came across when I, uh, did my first uh, research project, which was the impact of, um, emotions on our ability to persevere. And it was actually, uh, the participants were coaches building their business. You know, they come up against some sort of um, obstacle or challenge, they have some sort of emotional response, uh, and turns out depending on their uh, coping style, whether they have an accept more of an acceptance or an avoidance coping style, their ability to persevere was either unaffected or uh, went down. So those that had more of an acceptance style, they were able to persevere no matter what the emotion that they experienced mm. was. Uh, those with the avoidance style the more negatively they experienced the emotion, the less they persevered, the more positively they experienced the emotion, the more they persevered. So they were kind of, their, they, their behavior was uh, impacted on and, and sort of dictated by the positive and negative emotion. But one of the things that I often get from my students, which is, you know, we always want to have positive emotions. We Like negative is bad. We don't want to have negative emotions. So one of the things with this PEA and NEA is, uh, of course, the negative affect component of it. What are your thoughts and insights around this idea that, you know, um, that people often have, oh, we only want to have uh, positive emotions. We never want to have the negative. We never want to have, uh, we want to stay away from that. It's, it's really bad. Mm-hmm. So we should probably always be in the PEA. Yeah, no, I think that's a tremendously dangerous way of, of thinking, actually. Um, mm, mm. And it's not quite the point that Richard had about the PEA versus NEA. Um, um, so, I mean, I mean, yeah, obviously positive and negative is part of it, but he was really talking about, like, how different styles of being, of thinking of how to make plans would, would push you in a positive or negative way. I think um, you know there's a lot of research that suggests that if you if you can't sit with the discomfort, as it were, of the negative feelings, um, then you can a- end up in in sort of in trouble. It's it's not a good coping style. So there are a few different ways in which people talk about that. Um, so James Gross, who's a an influential motion regulation researcher, um, he talks about um, reappraisal and suppression where suppression is really not a very healthy style so in in so far as you're trying to suppress your negative emotions that may um it, it tends to be a little counterproductive it's rather like don't think of a white bear 
and you know what's the first thing you do you think of a white bear so when we when we kind of really use our willpower to try and push something away it works okay in the short term and it, it may be a very important strategy in an emergency um it's it's not a very um so it's not sustainable it's not a very productive strategy in the longer term so um there's a concept of um integrative emotion regulation which is to say that you are able to uh, to you have a picture of your emotions which includes the negative as well as as the positive and um it looks like that's tremendously important so um i uh, often talk to my students about this um i i teach a science of happiness course um i've done for many years and um this is one of the topics we hit on and there are some practical tools that one can um one can you know use for this so um i i generally introduce them to that contrast between um the um the suppression style and the reappraisal style and um and then I and then I introduced him to the work of someone called James Panabaker, who um, is a is a very well respected psychologist, uh, who's who's had a long career. He's he was the chair of um, he may still be of, of uh, psychology um, in Austin, Texas, um, for a long time, uh, and he's done he's done many things in his career. Um, but what he really what he really first made a splash with was um, this expressive writing intervention. And he, he wrote a book about it called Opening Up. So in, in this expressive writing intervention, what you do is you ask people to write for just 20 minutes um, about the most traumatic experience in their life. So it's, it's really in the moment, quite a negative experience. And um, having um, done it many times myself and, and being the professor, making whole rooms full of students today, I can assure you most people a negative experience, right? <laughs> You're obviously recalling some difficult memories. Um, the writing instructions are that once you start, you don't stop. So you just keep on going. The point is not to get a particularly, you know, well-written thing. It's really not for anyone else to read anyway, but that you manage to work on a narrative that incorporates these negative events that much of the time we avoid thinking about. Now, what Panabaker showed now a very long time ago, I mean, I think maybe 30 years ago, was that just one session of doing that for 20 minutes um, would impact the number of times the students who did it would visit health services and their GPA. So there's a measurable effect with just one session. The general recommendations now are to do it three to five times um, uh, to, to maximize the effect. And uh, I mean, it's a very interesting intervention because you might think, like, why on earth should that improve people's outcomes? Oh, by the way, the data now for uh, the outcomes it'll improve across many different populations, not just undergraduates, are, are really quite impressive. Everything from lung function to immune function to to sort of feelings of psychological well-being and performance um, at, at school and in other contexts. So um, sort, of, sort of amazing that that is true. And I think I, this, this, I think, fits with um, what we see as a major function of this empathic network in the brain, 
which is which is in part responsible for constructing a narrative that helps us make sense of our emotions and of our experiences in life. Also helps us make sense of other people's emotions and their experiences in life, right? Helps, allows us to relate to other people. So um, it looks like if you can have that context, then that's gonna improve your ability to regulate negative emotions like that when they come up again. You, you sort of brought them into this larger sort of narrative or series of narratives, multiple narratives that you're using to help you cope with um, a situation. And I think intuitively we can all understand the tremendous importance of a narrative. If you tell someone, you know, one hour you're gonna get something wonderful, but you gotta sit here and, and bear through this right now. Most people are like, no problem, right? Like, I mean, unless it's really terrible what they gotta sit through, right? If you just make someone put someone in that unpleasant situation with no context, nothing, no idea when it's going to end. You know, people get tremendously distressed, right? So the narrative, the larger context really matters, right? That we can, we can place these things in a, in a narrative. So I think that it builds that up. It, it helps us to incorporate things that otherwise would be triggers that we didn't have agency over, but it helps you to come up with a, a story. And one of the things Pennebaker went on to do was to analyze the scripts that people wrote. I never asked my students to give me what they write because I'm not, I have no intention to use them for research purposes. It would just be prying. But, um, but, but he was doing research on it. And so he, and he would see that they went from a more passive voice to a more active voice. They, they went for, to using I more. And he even related that transition in the language um, of their writing to their sort of psychological and health improvement. So, um, so yeah, I think. Mm, very, yeah. very interesting. I, um, I came across this paper the other day, a concept that I haven't uh, heard at least by the, uh, the label that was used, and it, it's positioned as an alternative to the hedonic and eudaimonic, eudaimonic uh, approaches to, to happiness. And... Uh, I, I couldn't find the paper here um, while we're talking, but I found a um, an article that cites the paper and it's in defense of the psychologically rich life. So it's the psychologically rich life that, that's been proposed as this uh, alternative. And um, just see if I can find the little passage here, actually. It was very, very interesting. Um, so our listeners will have, will have heard... Me talk about hedonic and eudaimonic before, so sure we don't need to to go back over that. But basically, it's mm-hmm. um, you know pleasure versus meaning. If I was to sum it up, um, so what they what they, and they did this study, and they they found that even though a lot of people said that they wanted more of the happiness, primarily. A lot, me, a lot more people, uh, a lot less people said that they wanted more of the meaning. Very few people said that they wanted the psychologically rich, but um, through indirect uh, sort of analysis about what they wanted in life, m- uh, the majority of them wanted this psychologically rich life. Mm. The psychologically rich life is full of complex mental engagement, a wide range of intense and deep emotions, 
and diverse, novel, surprising, and interesting experiences. Sometimes the experiences are pleasant, sometimes they are meaningful, and sometimes they are neither pleasant nor meaningful. However, they are rarely boring or monotonous. And <laughs> as, as we're uh, discussing is some, uh, it's I think it's great. I'm, I, I want to look into this further. Um, and as we're you know talking about this stuff, I'm thinking, like, wouldn't trying to just have negative emotion or positive emotion, let's say joy or excitement, if you want to, you know, take take it up a notch, wouldn't after a while that just be a little monotonous, like? Don't we want to experience those deep, intense emotions? And oftentimes they're not always that pleasant uh, to bring some psychological richness to our life. Now, I'm not sure it's for everybody, but it certainly sounds appealing to me. Do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I think, well, I think there's a certain sense in which you can't, if you're going to care about something outside yourself, then you are, you put yourself at the mercy of outcomes that you cannot mm. fully control. Um, and so there must be some variation in your experience and, and there must be disappointment sometimes. Um, and I, I think there's just a tremendous amount of work that shows that, like you said, with the difference between eudaimonic and hedonic, caring about things outside ourselves is paradoxically the best route to hedonic happiness mm -hmm. um it, we just don't fare well like you know purely focused on ourselves we um tend to make ourselves sort of miserable and we disconnect ourselves from other people when it, when i point out to my students like what like at a dis at thirty thousand feet like what what does all the research on well-being say are the big movers of well-being it's pretty clear that it's the quality of your social connections that is that just blows everything else off the map right and this is even of course true for our physical health um and, and i mean there's various mechanisms uh, uh, related to that which we could dig into but um that that Caring about other people is is signing up to a roller coaster, yeah, right? Yeah. But it's, it's, it's signing up. And yeah, you know, you, you can't make them do what you want them to, right? So, uh, but that's that's um is really what gives life meaning as well. So, um, yeah. so yeah, yeah, very very cool. What are you currently doing at the uh, at the Brain Mind and Consciousness Lab? Any exciting projects you're currently working on? Well, I mean, partly because of the <laughs> pandemic, but also um, I'm uh, I'm working on a on a book. So oh, awesome! I was going to ask actually. Yeah, I'm. Uh, <laughs> so my big focus is um, I realized after a while that um, you know there's a, there's sort of a problem in academia in general is people publish too many papers and don't read anything else, and they're just like in their own little like narrow grooves. And I, after a while I realized like, first of all, that like there were some of the things I was writing, you know, people would just keep on saying something that it contrad that my data contradicted. And I'm like, well, okay, that's just, that's disappointing. Cause that's not how science is supposed to work. But, um, but I kind of get it because of the practical politics of science and, and of how we make our careers and, what we pay attention to and that we're information overloaded. 
So I just decided at a certain point also that, that what we were seeing in the brain was so, so big that it needed a, a, a big, clear story. So, or, or it needed also some simplicity brought to it. So the, my, my, what I'm working on is a sort of, not exactly a popular book. I mean, not, not exactly um, aimed, at the, aimed at the completely mass market, but it's, um, it's a fairly popular rendition you know, of, of the various ideas which I've been working with for a while and synthesizing. So I think that's probably the biggest, how I can have the biggest impact rather than doing more. I mean, I can do more brain imaging studies, but at a certain point, I feel like we've, we've learned more about the brain than we're successfully translating. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome to hear. In fact, um, I think it was like one of the set, probably the second paper that uh, I ever read of yours. I was like searching for the book. <laughs> I'm like, where's the book? Why hasn't you written a book yet? <laughs> so that's really exciting to hear. Do we do we have a um, a release date yet or approximate? No, no, no release date. I have a provisional title: um, "The Mind's Essential Tension." Nice. I can't can't wait for it. Thank you. Yeah, Tony, it's been an absolute pleasure to to speak with you, and thank you very much for being on the show. It's, it's been a pleasure to talk to you too. Thank you for having me on. That's it for this episode. If you want to support the show, make sure to subscribe, leave a five-star review, and then head over to brainfirsttraininginstitute.com to join our community of coaches. And for resources and products to help you upgrade your brain in life, including interviews with leading neuroscientists and health and high-performance experts, go to mybrainfirst.com. Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you soon.